Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's start a conversation off this morning with Peter Dixon, Commerce Bank Global Equities Economist. Peter, great to catch up with you, sir. Just want to start with a basic one. Seems to me that nobody really wants to sell down risk before the first vaccination. Do you share that view, sir? Uh, morning. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's true. I mean, I think that at the moment, um, you know, all the good news is basically being put into the price, or most of it anyway. And, you know, we're not entirely sure how this is going to play out. And we've, we've had lots of questions, I think, particularly regarding the, the AstraZeneca situation. Um, but as you said, markets just not willing to sell off, um, you know, at, at the moment. I think we're in a bit of a holding pattern. Obviously, the holiday disrupted um, period has, has probably forced investors onto the back foot a little bit. We're being a little bit circumspect. You know, and we've, we've still got a couple of weeks, I guess, of trading uh, in this year to come. Um, you know, normally you'd expect things to start winding down, but I think there are just so many things, so many moving parts out there that um, I think we can expect a very, uh, very interesting two weeks. Um, I think the, the, my view is that you know, we should be positive. I think we'll probably end the year a little bit higher than we are now, but um, you know, there's, there's many a slip between cup and lip, as you say, and um, you know, there, are, there are lots of downside risks. Well, let's talk about the slips that we've had already. Jobless claims moving the wrong way last week. Jobless claims moving the wrong way this week. Peter, I've kept asking the question, how big will our tolerance be? How high will our tolerance be? As we work our way through some negative data in the United States of America, we've shaken off two weeks of it. Can we shake off three? Can we shake off four, five, six? Um, that's a fair point. You know, when, when, how, many, uh, how many data points do you, do you need to, to see a pattern or a trend emerging here? Um, I mean, I, I think the markets are looking a bit further ahead than this. I mean, obviously... The, the labor market in the States has taken a massive hit. That, that indeed has been the case in you know, other markets around the world. But we, we get more to that data in the U.S., and I think we just uh, put it under the magnifying glass a little bit more. Um, but it is true that it's still some – employment anyway, it's still some 10 million short of where we were back in February. Um, and as you said, it's running in the wrong direction. Um, if we get to the end of the year without any major problems, I, I think markets can, can wear that, you know, a couple, a couple of small ups and a couple of small downs, broadly sideways on claims, we'll be happy. Um, but if, uh, if the claims numbers start to move in the wrong direction at a faster pace, uh, that's the point at which I think markets will start to get worried. And, of course, given the, uh, the, the mounting uh, number of COVID cases uh, everywhere, but obviously in the United States, I think that, that certainly is a major risk. Peter, great to have you with us. I'm interested by not all markets are made the same at the moment. I'm looking at a board with the Russell 2000. Yes, it's only down by a tenth of a percent, but it's down while the Nasdaq outperforms. Once again, this so-called rotation trade, which we turn a phrase we use too much at the moment, but it's on hold. Can we move higher without big tech in leading charge? Or do you expect that big tech will once again become a game plan for investors? Um. Well, I think there were a number of issues there, all, all interesting ones. I mean, in terms of the, the big picture, um, you know, I do think that the tech universe will, will move higher, but I think we'll have to differentiate between those parts of the tech sector we like or, or which have a, um, you know, a post-COVID future and, and those which perhaps have done well, you know, thanks to the lockdown. So, you know, do you want to stick with, um, with Netflix in a world in which we're, we're, we're getting back to some form of normality? 
whereas you know, there has been a game changer in terms of you know, Amazon's revolution of, of the online um, trading platform. So I, I think there is you know, there's definitely still value there, but whether it will be the same trade that we saw prior to the, the lockdowns, I would question. Um, in terms of the, the non-tech sector, um, you know, it, it, it is really dependent on good news on the vaccine front. I mean, um, as I said, I, I think much of the good news was priced in very quickly. Mm. Um, we need more uh, that part of the market higher. Um, you know, that could happen, but at the moment uh, there's nothing out there which is really going to, uh, which is really floating my boat. <laughs> Floating, floating around. I mean, the moves have been sensational. The Russell 2000 up 20% on the month, a record month, at record highs. The Dow at that sacred number, 30,000. Meanwhile, bonds remain completely range-bound in the U.S. Treasury, which never really get above 1 percentage points. Peter, fold in the yield differentiation here and how much, at what point we might see people back away from these valuations if the yield does just pick up that much higher in the U.S.? Well, I mean, the first question you have to ask yourself is, is what are central banks going to do? And the likelihood is that they will stay active for, for a long time to come. So I think we're talking, you know, another six months or thereabouts, at least before we have to start thinking about um, significant moves in yield. Yes, there might be a bit of a pickup um, if we start um, more good vaccine news. Um, I mean, much better news than we're seeing now. That, that could, you know, send yields a little bit higher. But I, I genuinely don't think that yields are going to go anywhere anytime fast. So whatever they, they pick up in the first half of next year, they'll probably lose in the second half. Simply well, Peter, let's talk about why. I want to jump in just quickly and get to the bond market at the moment. Twos, tens, thirties, yields lower. On tens, we're down two basis points to 0.86%. This market is rallied, as Caroline pointed out. We've had that great rotation over the last month. This bond market, yields just haven't come with it. We've been asking a question, why? Do you think it's technical because people believe the Fed steps in and puts a lid on it? Or do you think it's fundamental? There's some doubts in this bond market about that trajectory for growth, for inflation, for the years to come. Uh, if you ask me to put, put weight on it, I would say 80% expectations of what the central banks are going to do, and much of the Fed, uh, you know, maybe 20% um, uh, fundamentals. I mean, there are some people out there who say, well, actually, if the, uh, the, the recovery does go at pace over the course of the next uh, there's been such damage to the supply side of the economy that you might actually see inflation start to pick up. I mean, that's not my view, but it's out there. So, you know, there are some modest upside risks, but I think generally speaking, I would see, you know, rates going sideways and go back to Caroline's point. Why is the great rotation not happening? Simply because, you know, investors really don't see much value in bonds. They're continuing to pile into equities, and I think that's going to be the theme, uh, certainly for the early months of 2021. Peter, great to catch up. Appreciate your time this morning, sir. Peter Dixon there of Commerce Bank. Camilla Janoszewski joins us now of CFRA Equity Research. Camilla, I'm trying to understand this. Do the increases in COVID positive testing rates in the United States of America, across the country, including hospitalizations, do they lead to people shopping less or just changing how they shop? Shopping less, for sure. Thanks for having me. Fantastic to have you. Let's build on that then. Camilla, where do they shop less? In store, I mean, today is Black Friday here in the U.S., and COVID-19 is completely challenging the traditional holiday calendar. I think we're going to be seeing very few shopaholics trending on Twitter, uh, camping outside of Walmart or Target or Best Buy today. And 
that very muted outlook we have on Black Friday, which traditionally has been one of the biggest holiday shopping days of the year, has to do with fear of COVID-19 and daily cases reaching new daily highs. In fact, the survey in October found that a little over 10% of consumers said that they were very likely to shop in stores on Black Friday. So, Camilla, the medium and the medium of which people choose to shop is clearly shifting away from bricks and mortar towards e-commerce. That's been clear for years and it accelerated through this pandemic. When I say where will they shop less, I'm trying to understand what will people spend money on. Home Depot and the Home Improvement Channel, that has just been absolutely massive through this year. Is that where you see continued strength into 2021, even with a vaccine? Absolutely. When we look at the survey data, we've seen elevated interest for home decor and home furnishings, which doesn't come to us as a surprise, given that with COVID-19 cocooning, people are taking on more at-home living projects. But also, the data that we've looked at has shown that gift cards and clothing and accessories will continue to be popular categories this holiday season. Wow, clothing, finally, because everyone seems to have been pretty doom and gloom on that one. Camilla, I'm... I'm a sucker for an experiential present, you know, and you name it, a cookery course, some sort of cocktail making thing. Are people doing that? I mean, we've seen Airbnb manage to pivot into that sort of element of things, but I feel that experiential has got to be foot coming off the gas. What we're seeing, and this is specifically with the higher income demographic and why we have a forecast for the holiday season of a K-shaped economic recovery, is that higher income individuals, which have seen faster restoration of jobs and higher income growth, they're actually shifting spend away from pandemic-reliant services like travel, like Mm. entertainment, like the experiences, and that spend is actually shifting into retail this holiday season. So our holiday outlook, which is that retail sales for the months of November and December will be flat year over year, coming in at $1.05 trillion dollars, it's really reliant on how much these higher income individuals splurge this holiday season. This K-shaped economy is so important to us and the unequal nature of which this rebound is occurring. Who benefits by the fact that there are fortunately middle high income brackets who are able to spend on a, on a piece of jewellery rather than a high end luxury travel? And, and who doesn't, who loses out by the fact that those on the, who can't manage to get back to work at the moment are unable to buy for their children in the way that they usually would? On the retailer end, we did a digital traffic analysis. It's an analysis that we run every year to forecast our winners and losers. And the reason why we look at digital traffic is because we see a direct positive correlation between digital traffic and in-store traffic. And we saw growing momentum of luxury brands like Tiffany's entering this holiday season. And then one name that we called out in terms of our top five winners was Williams-Sonoma, which is a digital-first home furnishing retailer specifically targeted to a higher-income demographic. And then in terms of losers, I think it comes more on the lower-income consumer end because we think that this group of people is are very likely to embrace frugality this holiday season as fiscal stimulus starts to run low. There are estimates that approximately 12 million workers are facing a jobless benefit cliff on December 26. Camilla, appreciate your time this morning. Really do. Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Camilla Yanishevsky there of CFRA.
let's bring in our guest this morning, Drew Mattis, MetLife Investment Management Chief, Market Strategist. Drew, fantastic to catch up with you, mate. Let's just talk about the bond market to begin with. We've talked through the last 10 years in the last cycle and our inability to get yields higher, much higher, our inability in Europe to generate any kind of recovery that actually led to higher interest rates. In fact, they kept going lower through the cycle. Why is this recovery going to be any different, Drew? Well, when I talk to people, I think what's different about this recovery is that everyone's talking about the risk of inflation going forward. Um, and it's actually surprised me because I think when we do the math, you know, we come up with kind of inflation normalizing post, the, post this crisis. Um, but I think a lot of people have it in their, in their minds that this is an inflationary event uh, longer term uh, and that the period we're living in, you know, more closely resembles kind of the, the Vietnam era in the United States, that 70s era that led to, uh, the, you know, inflation uh, picking up. Uh, you have a Fed that's very aggressive. You have um, government stimulus, which, uh, you know, we already had rounds of and we'll probably have more rounds of. Um, and then, of course, you have, you have a, a big amount of dislocation in, in things like the labor market. Um, and so, you know, you combine those factors and people are beginning to worry a little bit more about inflation than they used to. Drew, going into the 80s, at the end of the 70s, the 10-year yield was about 13%. Right now, it's 85 basis points. That's a nominal yield, granted. But, Drew, where's the concern around inflation? Why is it not being priced into this bond market? I know it's part of the conversation. I'm having them daily as well. But it's not in the market right now. I think because people have, have kind of, you know, this is the boy who cried wolf scenario. Uh, people like myself have talked about inflation risks coming out of 2008. We were wrong. Um, you know, other people, you know, talked about it as well. And so pe people have kind of got it into their heads that inflation is this thing that, you know, the old people on Wall Street talk about, um, but that, that doesn't really exist. Uh, and I, you know, y you hate to say, well, this time's going to be different. But I, I do think that there are some reasons to believe inflation might tick higher. But let's just normalize it. You know, the idea that this movement in yields is not part of kind of the movement in yields we saw for the last couple of decades, right? This is, this is an aberration across the trend. Uh, and it, it means that most likely, the most likely scenario in my mind is that inflation moves higher, yields move higher. Uh, we probably don't go above the pre-COVID highs, right? Remember, at the end of 2019, 10-year U.S. Treasury yields were just below 2%. Mm. So, it, you know, even just a normalization is 110 basis points um, or so. Uh, and I think that's something that's more realistic or, or more reasonable to consider. Um, I'm not worried about a 4% 10-year yield anytime soon. Uh, if you want to call that being worried, I think I'd be, I'd be moving money at that point. What inflation rate, though, do you see on the higher side? How hot does it run? I, I'm looking for a normalization of inflation. Uh, so 2% or so. Uh, you know, it's... Um, and, you know, it could go a little higher for a temporary period of time. Uh, but I think the question people have is if we see 2% inflation, is the Fed going to react? And I think pretty clearly the answer is no. They've told us no. Um, and what worries me and I think what worries other people about that is this idea that an organization that really couldn't uh, orchestrate an inflationary push or, you know, has, has had more difficulty pulling down inflation, moving inflation around the way that they want, uh, has the ability to kind of maneuver inflation, you know, with that fine degree of precision. And, and I think, you know, letting it run hot for a while sounds great. How do you know when you're supposed to pull back? And how do you know what the lag is in terms of people believing that you're finally serious about inflation this time? 
So all of those factors are combining to, you know, the things that are trying to make us feel good about the current environment and, and keeping policy easy are the ones that are making people more concerned about the longer-term outlook for the inflation move. Where is this inflation coming from, though, Drew? Are we importing it? Are we fiscal stimulating it? I, I, think, people, I think people are going back to the idea that it's a monetary phenomenon. Uh, you know, the Fed has created a gigantic balance sheet, but unlike in 2008, where there were regulatory changes that made banks, you know, hold more in the way of bank reserves and, and kind of more of that liquid cash, um, there's nothing on, on the other side of it this time. Uh, there are no regulatory changes that have taken place to kind of make people want to hold more cash. Uh, you know, people are holding more cash because of COVID, uh, because of the risks around the economy. If you take that away and all that money is still sitting out there, people wonder where it's going to go. I also think, you know, from a, a psychological perspective, there are, you know, the savings rate's very high. People are kind of tired of being in their homes, tired of being locked up. Um, you know, where are they going to go spend that money uh, when the all clear is given? Uh, and is there enough capacity in the places that they're going to want to spend that money? to actually allow them to spend it? And I think the answer is no, right? There's going to be, you know, a lot of demand for a lot of experiences yeah. and things like that that are just going to, you know, it's going to be whoever wins the bid. The turn of the year is a really important time for bookings, for airlines going into Easter, the Easter holiday, going into spring, going into the summer. And, Drew, you can imagine the competition for flights to go on vacations if the vaccinations have actually started. I want to check in on the price action just quickly, Drew. Just excuse me for a moment. Equity futures are near session highs, so up about 10 points on the S&P 500. Had a brief move on the VIX, just for a moment. Sub 20, for the first time, I believe, going all the way back to February. Sub 20, just briefly, right now, 20.88. Drew, just to return to the story of rates, you said something really important and really quite compelling. The most important question right now through 2021, if we do get anywhere near 2% inflation, 21 into 22, is how the Fed responds. And they've set up their reaction function really, really clearly on rates. Now, Drew, I'm trying to work things out and just extrapolate it out a year, two years, three, maybe five, so forgive me. But do you think we could face a Europe-style issue where we go through a full cycle, a full recovery, without ever putting rates up? Uh, I mean, I think it's possible. I mean, I, I, you know, it, it depends on a recovery from what. I mean, one of the things that you know, I think it's easy to lose sight of is most forecasts, including our own, you know, had a recession in 2021. That's when we were expecting a recession. So we were preparing for a recession uh, in the later stages of 2019 because we saw one coming a year, year and a half out, not because of a virus, obviously, but, you know, if you looked at margins, if you looked at uh, the way the labor market was behaving, it all suggested that something was going to begin to kind of fall apart in the, in the later half of 2020, and by 2021 we'd be staring a recession in the face. Um, you know, I, I don't think this is a cycle. This is, this is a shock. The cycle that we're in, um, you know, probably reset actually a little bit, right? We, we've, you know, um, had the recession, uh, having the recession, seeing the labor market do what it's going to do. Um, I, I actually think the next economic cycle could be something like the 1990s. Um, you're seeing, you know, there, there's going to be improvements in productivity. You know, um, think of this as, think of all the technological advancements that happened during World War II, right? This is not obviously World War II, but this is a big shock to the global system that required uh, big movements in technology that yeah. required you know, big changes. 
we're experimenting with things, we're figuring out how things work, and we're doing it at a very rapid pace. Um, and when we come out of this, a lot of the changes that take place are going to be ones that are actually productivity boosting. Yeah. But and Drew, I think we need to really think about the positives sometime. Put my money to work then, Drew. In your focus as chief market strategist, where in portfolio are you adding? Uh, well, I mean, look, uh, you know, uh, don't fight the Fed's a good adage. Um, you know, I, I think, it, you know, if, if you look across, um, you know, we are a fixed income oriented portfolio. So we're, you know, we're, we're taking our cues from, from, from the Fed. We're taking our cues from kind of uh, where we think things, you know, should be going. Uh, but we're also not losing sight of the fact that, you know, some of the, you know, I, I think some of the ideas that are being put forward are, are maybe getting a little ahead of themselves, right? People are going to go back to offices, right? Uh, you know, uh, there is an efficiency there of people going to offices. There's some lack of efficiency there, but there's also, I think, more benefits than not to going into an office and interacting with people on a daily basis and seeing those interactions and what they turn into. Um, once again, part of that experimentation process. Um, and I think, you know, for a long time, people were like, why do we need to go into offices? What value does it add? I think everyone who's been working from home for the last eight months can give you a good idea of what actually value is added by going into the office. And I'm sure some of those stories are very personal too. Drew, appreciate the time, sir. Drew Mattis of MetLife, thank you. Who are the haves and the have-nots when it comes to the retail sector? Let's dig into that now, Jonathan, ahead of your all-important 9 a.m. open show. We're going to be talking retail with Steve Sadovs with us, MasterCard senior advisor and, of course, former SAC CEO. And we heard it from Peter Navarro there. We hear it across the aisle, this need for fiscal stimulus. If you were still heading up SACs right here, right now, how important would some more fiscal stimulus be to you? Oh, I think... And another fiscal stimulus is critical, especially for Main Street retailers. If you're one of the big box uh, Walmart targets uh, that were in the needs versus the wants, they're doing extremely well. The numbers that they posted during the third quarter were pretty stunning. Uh, I think the issue is for the uh, travel-related, the restaurants, the small retailers that aren't able to play in, uh, at the scale and be able to do things like buy online, pick up in store. Those retailers are really struggling, and the stimulus checks uh, for the lower-income consumers are important. So the bridge that you talk about between now and the post-vaccine period that are really required. Now, having said that, the consumer overall is really quite strong right now, and we can talk about some of the MasterCard spending pulse numbers, but the vibrancy of the consumer, especially the high-end consumer, is really quite remarkable. I talk about the haves and the have-nots, and that's it, isn't it? It's the fact it's the middle class, the upper class, the people who have maintained their white-collar jobs working from home are still able to splash the cash. What are they splashing it on at the moment, Steve? Well, the reality is what they're not spending on, they're not commuting, they're staying mm. home, they're not traveling, so uh, they're not going out to eat in restaurants as much, so they're spending on things related to their home. And... Uh, uh, it could be uh, hardware, home, electronics, uh, uh, everything to spruce up their house and make it more comfortable at home or just thriving. And they've continued to thrive during the, uh, uh, the pandemic. But I think it's important to step back from it and look at where is overall consumption, because when we went into the depths of this uh, sort of pandemic in, let's call it the March time frame, overall retail consumption was down minus about 12 percent. And I thought, boy, we're really 
going to have a very long recovery. And by May, June, it was down to about a minus five. During the midsummer, it went to a flat. And over the last two and a half months, we've been positive. And importantly, the month, and this is all spending pulse data, the uh, month of October was up four. And then the first half of November was up 5.8%. So we're on a trend where overall consumption is healthy. And that's even with the uh, stimulus checks having stopped in the last uh, uh, period of time. So what you're seeing is an acceleration of earlier Thanksgiving promotions. You're seeing pulling it forward. You're, uh, you're seeing that higher-end consumer coming uh, back. And you are seeing this kind of home-related electronics uh, phenomena, uh, grocery, uh, home delivery, things like that are uh, just doing extremely well. According to your data that you have, the spending pulse data, are those that are able to spend, those fortunate few who have been, well, fortunate many who have been able to be on the upward trajectory of the K-shaped economy, are they spending more thoughtfully at the moment, Steve? You know, I, I think there's some uh, qualitative research that's been done by MasterCard in addition to the actual spending pulse, which shows you what categories they're buying. It's also showing attitudinally that they... They see the pain that's out there. They're shopping a lot more locally, or they're looking to shop more locally. They're looking to support their communities. Uh, you're seeing the less travel. You're also see a, seeing a very big uptick in what I call socially conscious uh, shopping. That's about uh, whether sustainability, social responsibility. A lot of this uh, started with the Gen Z customer. It's expanded more broadly. And people are looking to do good while they shop as well. And that's, I think, a, a phenomenon that's going to be increasingly important as we go into next year. With your MasterCard hat on, but also with your experience from Saks, do you think the likes of Saks, the likes of the big department stores, luxury high-end department stores, are pivoting to that realization that people want to spend more consciously and more responsibly? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I see it especially, well, first I see it in a lot of the smaller direct-to-consumer brands that each have a story to tell. I see it in the bigger companies. Uh, it's harder if you're a uh, large department store carrying mm -hmm. thousands of items. I see it in the philanthropic work that, uh, that all these companies are doing. I see it in what they're promoting. Uh, so there is an effort being made. It's a little bit, uh, uh, you know, I, I think it's on a case-by-case, company-by-company uh, perspective. Uh, but I do th see it as being an underlying trend that's uh, hitting all of the retailers, not just the uh, individual DTC brands. Steve, MasterCard has such a wonderfully global perspective. And what I find fascinating, having come from the UK, when I first moved to New York, I was astounded that I wasn't able to use touchless pay payment as, as freely as I had in London. I would never walk with, out without, never take a wallet. I'd just take my phone and then suddenly here I keep having to run back to the office to get my salad because I had walked out and my phone didn't work to pay. Is that happening more? Are we seeing that digital divide between, say, the UK and the US in terms of payments shrink? I think you've seen a massive change going on over the last, let's call it, eight months. And it's t driven by the consumer's desire for convenience and safety. So anything that relates to safety, touchless becoming, contactless becoming one of those elements, buy online, pick up uh, curbside, uh, shopping online, are having exponential growth. You've seen overall internet commerce going from 12% of commerce to 20% of commerce. Even today over high base mm. growing in the 50 to 60% uh, growth range. Contactless 
uh, meaning a touch, let's call it a touchless uh, 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 credit card experience, yeah. that's growing exponentially. It's nowhere near the levels that you're seeing in, let's say, a London. And I think that's going to be the opportunity. So these, yeah. these trends have been accelerated by probably, let's call it eight years Steve. of change in eight months or six years of change in six months. And I think that you're, uh, the consumer is getting comfortable with uh, the experience, and it's, that's the direction it's going. So you say it off. Wonderful. I have time with you. MasterCard Senior Advisor, former Sachs CEO. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.